there's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Welcome to Switched On Pop. I'm songwriter Charlie Harding. And I'm musicologist Nate Sun. So, Nate, have you noticed this anxiety that has overtaken pop music in the last six months? Uh, which which one? I feel like we're, <laughs> pop is full of anxiety. So, according to many, the economics of streaming is changing music so significantly right now that pop may literally never sound the same again. And today, I want to investigate these claims by seeing how musicians are altering their sounds to make it in today's streaming economy. And to do this, I've recruited Aisha Hassan and Dan Kopf, who have written about how streaming is affecting the sound of pop for courts in a piece called The Reason Why Your Favorite Pop Songs Are Getting Shorter. Aisha and Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. Nice to be here. This is exciting. Yes. It is. Okay. So (laughs) in a recent Guardian interview, mega pop producer Mark Ronson said that All your songs have to be under three minutes and 15 seconds because if people don't listen to them all the way to the end, they get into this ratio of non-complete herd, which sends your Spotify rating down and songwriters are forced to churn out hits at short order. So Aisha, can you untangle Ronson's gripe and explain what is causing so much concern? So the way that many music streaming services work is that songs generate money per play. That means every time that they're streamed, they generate a certain amount of money, and that's very little. So it ranges between $0.004 to $0.008. And then if you don't play it to the very end and that rating goes down, meaning that people don't listen to the song through as much, then the song is less likely to make it into Spotify's really lucrative playlists, which get them streamed more. And because the amount of money is so little, volume is really important. So this is obviously extremely different from how artists were paid in the past. Right. I think it's important to note that artists right now, according to a report um, in 2017, they're only getting about 10% of the music industry's total revenue. Hmm. But streaming is so important because that's how they're going to break out, right? And if they're not going to be heard by audiences, then less people are going to buy their tickets um, for their concerts, less people are going to buy their merch So to be visible, it's really important to sometimes game the streaming system Hmm. so more people listen to their stuff. Okay, gaming the streaming system. Yeah, Yeah, so so there's some sort of of perverse uh, incentives going on in here. And just to sort of get a sort of order of magnitude around this, a CD used to cost, you know, $15 to $20. And how many songs do you have to stream in order to make the equivalent on an old record. So a thousand streams is equivalent of $6. So we're think, talking about wow. 1,500 streams to get $9. Whoa. And, right. and, and of course, in, in the <laughs> artist probably is only making a fraction of that those $9. That's exactly right. The music services tend to take 30% of that revenue. So Spotify or Apple Music or whatever will take around 30%. And then even though you've got the rest of that money going to artists, depending on the deal that they have with record labels, and the amount of people who have contributed to the track, that 
money, which is already very little at the beginning, is split up even more. Hmm. So artists are actually getting a very, very small amount of money. Okay, so this is interesting. I feel like we have two different issues at hand now that we have to deal with. Mm. One, as you mentioned, is this question of are songs getting shorter and sort of why? And then also, are there are certain like time markers or boundaries that you have to fit within? Is that changing the way that perhaps people are writing music? And so let's take them in that order. Great. So are songs are songs getting shorter? Yes, definitely. So uh, <laughs> around 2000, uh, the median length of a Billboard Hot 100 songs was well over four minutes, so about four minutes and seven seconds. And in 2018, it was just over three and a half minutes. So we've lopped off more than 30 seconds off the average Billboard Hot 100 songs. So that's that, Whoa, that's quite a bit. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. So Mark Ronson's anxiety that that Charlie quoted at the beginning of this episode is is perhaps warranted. Songs are getting shorter. Yes, and there's also these extreme examples. So there are a bunch of songs mm-hmm. now that are under two and a half minutes long. So. In the 2000s, there were virtually no songs under two and a half minutes that made the charts. And in 2018, about 6% of them were less than two and a half minutes, and some even just two minutes. Yeah, you documented this in your piece, and there's like a hockey stick-like graph, basically starting in, I don't know, like 20... 2015. In 2015, all of a sudden, yes. there's all of these songs that are now two and a half minutes or shorter. You pointed to... Kanye West and Lil Pump's I Love It, Mm -hmm. which comes in at just over two minutes Wow. Correct. So the question, of course, is like, where is the music going? I'm (laughs) curious, in in your investigations, how much of this do you see is intertwined with the dominance of hip-hop as the main form of today's popular music? So that's a complicated thing to answer because, you know, hip hop has seeped into all genres. So even when you listen to country, as you guys have pointed out in previous uh, shows, country now has a hip hop effect. But if you look at every genre, they've all fallen. Uh, R&B, rock, Mm -hmm. pop, country, all of them have Mm -hmm. taken a big Mm -hmm. dive over the last two decades. Uh, Rap the most. So it's definitely the biggest phenomenon there. But it's not just a hip hop thing. So on the one hand, we have some different incentive structures set up. And just to be clear about them, my understanding is we have songs are getting shorter because the way that you get paid with streaming is per song. And it used to be since the, I don't know, the age of album-oriented music that the album was the main way that you made Uh, you know, made your money. And so now if you're getting paid per song, it makes sense to have like 20 really short songs that might actually run shorter than an album length that would be 10 songs that are twice, three times as long. And so you're, you're, you're gaming. Can I get as many songs in as possible? Is that, is that an accurate description of how some people are understanding this? Yeah. I just want to complicate things a little bit. So, yes, we are pretty confident that streaming matters, but this is actually a pretty long-term trend. So if we look over the 20th century, you'll see that songs were quite short in the 40s and 50s, and then they got way longer through the latter half of the 20th century. And then starting around the late 1990s all the way up to today, we see songs shortening. So it's definitely got to be more than just streaming, but we're confident that sort of the effect that we're seeing over the last several years is uh, a result of the desire to make more money from having shorter songs. And if somebody listens to an album repetitively, 
the artist will get more money. But there's definitely more going on there than just streaming. Okay, so Spotify actually put out a press release about this phenomenon and said that in the world of digital consumption, our narrow windows of free time are the object of fierce competition Mm -hmm. by the seemingly limitless choices streaming platforms present. Short songs represent a solution to an audience's abundance of choice alongside endless opportunities for diversion. So there's sort of a question of like, our audience is also driving this, that perhaps that's that's what they're suggesting. I think what we need to do, though, is examine the music and see, is this really going on? And I'm particularly interested in looking at like, if songs are getting shorter, what's being put on the chopping block? And so we, we had sort of, we established that hip hop is... Uh, the most dominant form of pop music right now. You go on the billboard, 60-70% of the charts are going to be hip-hop. And if you also look at the songs which tend to be shorter, especially these sort of two-minute, two-and-a-half-minute songs, a lot of hip-hop songs in there as well. And I think there's a there's a part of this which makes sense because in hip-hop, you, you don't necessarily have as rigid a, a structure of a pop song. You don't necessarily have to have, for example, a pre-chorus or a post-chorus or a bridge. You can just have hook, verse, hook, verse, and you're out. Hmm. And so when you look at a song like Kanye West and Lil Pump's piece, they're doing exactly that. When the first time they ask you, you want sparkling or still, are you trying to act like you was drinking sparkling water before you came out here? You're such a fucking, I'm a sick folk, I like a quick folk, I'm a sick folk, I like... Let's do a two-verse piece instead of, you know, you go back to 90s hip-hop, you might have had three, four, five verses in a song. So it's easy to just, you can chop it down, make more songs. That makes sense to me. I think where things get more complicated are when songs are using sort of more traditional verse-chorus song form. So if we look at a song like East Side, that song comes in at 2 minutes and 54 seconds, which is a pretty short pop song. Mm. And I wanted to look at just where is the extra music going. So let's take a listen to Benny Blanco's East Side, and we're going to listen to just what happens at the end. Cool. He used to meet me on the East Side. She used to meet me on the East Side. Okay, what did we just hear? That I don't know. An outro? Outro. An outro. Yes, I got it. I got it. (laughs) It's an outro. But here's the thing. The, the, The material that was leading before that outro was the bridge of the song. And there's like a pretty hard and fast rule. Nate, professor, what happens after a bridge? You go back to the chorus. You go back to the chorus. And so what they've actually done is they've just lopped off the final chorus, instead replaced it with an outro, which is the same material as the chorus, but you don't have that sort of big final bombastic moment. Instead, it's this sort of fading out moment. It's maybe appropriate for the song since this is a melancholy looking back on a relationship song, but I think we're missing the final 30 seconds of the song because they literally just don't have the final two choruses. Yeah, it's like a bridge that just like goes directly into the ocean. <laughs> it's a bridge <laughs> to nowhere. Yeah. So that's one sort of victim of the perhaps streaming-driven shortening of of pop songs that they're getting a chorus that you might expect to hear at the end is getting chopped off and replaced by just a a little outro. Okay, so I found some other things that I think are ways that artists are adapting Uh to make things a little thinner, a little little trim. I was talking to Jeremy Lloyd of Marion Hill, who was on our show uh, a few episodes back, and really thoughtful about composition. And one of the things he said to us was... uh, the biggest thing I've been thinking about is skip rates to try to get people through the whole song. You all established that if you don't listen to 30 seconds of a song, mm-hmm. people, it doesn't count, right? That's correct. People, if they're skipping around, it's not counting. And so how are, how can artists game 
a way to hook you into the song immediately? Well, probably the most obvious thing is don't have a minute long intro. And so one ad, one, one, one sort of adaptation that I've seen is a just jump right in on the song, hmm. almost like starting the song in the middle. And so here's a clip of Kodak Black's Calling My Spirit and just check it out. It might actually make you jump. I put my heart on my lips. I gave it all I could give. I made it hot at the crib. I can't fire the crib. Where you gonna go when you do? I just wanna be clear, this is not me cutting into the song. The song literally just starts right here. I put my heart on my lips. I gave it all I could give. Huh. Interesting. Seems like oh, really dropped like in medias res, like I'm just in the middle of everything going on. Don't you feel like you've like stepped in on someone's conversation? You're like, I'm so sorry. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I kind of loved it though. I was bouncing right from the moment it started. Ditto. Ditto. It's very effective. That yeah. is the point. And <laughs> the other adaptation that I've seen songwriters make is an old adage uh, summarized by Dave Grohl so beautifully talking with Kyle Grass from Tenacious D. You know who writes the hits? Aerosmith writes the hits. The song is all court. Love in an elevator? What's the yeah. verse to that song? <laughs> there isn't one! It's Love in an elevator! Janie's yeah. got a gun? Yeah. It's all tip! Well, how's it start? Janie's got a gun. Yeah. Right, so it's chorus, chorus, pre-chorus, chorus, verse, kinda. Chorus, pre-chorus, chorus, 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 finale, chorus. It's all chorus. Don't yeah. bore us, get to the chorus. Don't bore us, get to the chorus. Hit lessons. Wow, Dave Grohl, musicologist. <laughs> I like it. So I have observed that many people are taking Dave Grohl's advice, don't bore us, get to the chorus. And rather than having a traditional intro into a verse, into a pre-chorus, into a chorus, we're just starting right in the chorus. The king of this method is Post Malone. You could look at his songs better now. Rockstar, Psycho, Congratulations. They all do this. Let's just take a listen to uh, Better Now, for instance. That is the chorus. And it works. It hooks you right in immediately. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and you're waiting for the next time it comes around, so you're more likely to stay now that you've got the like the best bit of the song almost. Exactly. And you it's like, can I get that one again? I'm gonna keep listening. <laughs> get through that 30-second mark. Can I ask you a question, Charlie? Why didn't they always do this if it's so effective? <laughs> <laughs> because maybe a pop song wants to have some romance and it wants to slowly seduce you and eventually lead you to that wonderful moment in the chorus. But now people are like, I want that dopamine hit right away. <laughs> there's, there's, you know, there's so many uh, alternatives at all times, according to Spotify, right? So I'm witnessing these adaptations all over the billboard. But the one that interests me the most is something that actually harkens to the past. And in order to uncover uh, the most creative adaptive strategy for hmm. making music in the streaming era, I'm going to have to pass to Dr. Nate Sloan to take us back into the classical past. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing! I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. 
That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docuseries, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. <laughs> I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now! I hate it. <laughs> I'm Abby Ayers, a 37-year-old mom from Utah who found herself running across the Manhattan Bridge in my first race ever. Running Sucks celebrates women who run and the running communities that carry them across the finish line. Running helped me in so many ways postpartum. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. For every person like you, I'm telling you, you belong, and I'm telling you, you can do it. I never thought the words would leave my mouth, but yes, I'm planning on running a marathon. (laughs) I can't even say it without laughing, because, like, who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course. That's my cue. So we're <laughs> going to talk about something we're calling the pop overture. And that the second half of that phrase, the overture, is like the, the classical part of this conversation because overtures go back to the, the world of opera. If you think of like, you know, a Rossini opera like William Tell, you know, that, that starts with just an instrumental overture, including the famous theme, But those overtures are not exactly what we're talking about because those overtures don't really feature like music from the opera that you're going to see. What's the point of them? What are they doing? Just to, I mean, those are really to just engage the audience and to get them pumped up for the show that they're about to see. That's that's pretty much it. It's like going it's like going to a stadium and they play, you know. We will rock you. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but then what we're, we're more interested in in what you might call like the Broadway overture because this is an approach to writing an overture where you do the same thing you get the audience excited you get them jazzed up but you do it by taking all this music from the show they're about to see and putting it into like a compact little medley you can take the example of a show like West Side Story you know that multi-hour musical gets condensed down into like a five-minute medley we can play just a few excerpts from it right now So we go from the song Tonight, Tonight, to Maria, Maria. And then to the climactic, it's called Mambo, but it's like the big fight scene in the, in the, the rumble scene, kind of. So you're getting like all the material from the show you're about to see, and it's kind of getting you excited, amping you up for the spectacle that you're about to behold. It's a spoiler alert. 
<laughs> yeah, in a, in a way, I guess. It is, yeah. That's the classical pass. And mm-hmm. I'm hearing, basically, artists taking this classical idea of the overture, probably not intentionally, but with the same effect, trying to get you excited for what's to come right away, right when you sit down in your seat or wherever you are, listening in your car, song comes on and you're in it. And the way that they're doing that is they're taking a fragment of the most exciting part of the song, the chorus, and they're putting it into the beginning of the song. And there's a couple of different ways that I've heard people try this pop overture. Let's start with uh, Dua Lipa. Her song, One Kiss, begins with a pop overture. One kiss is all it takes, falling in love with me. We can hear how that intro comes again later. Here's the, the chorus in full. Cause I'm lost in the way you move, the way you feel. One kiss is all it takes. Falling in love with me. Possibilities. I look like all you need. One kiss is all it takes. And so you get the full version. Here what she's done is she's sort of applied a filter effect at the intro and given you just a, a, a small section of the chorus. Not the whole thing, a little fragment of it. Now, the next artist that I hear doing this is Drake. We're going to talk more about Drake because Drake is really important in the streaming economy. On his song, God's Plan, we are getting that same sort of fragment approach and maybe even a smaller amount of the chorus. That's the intro. Simple. Not much. You know, if you, just to remind everyone, if you haven't heard it, I think it's been streamed two billion times, but here, here it is. Bad things. It's a lot of bad things that they wishing and wishing and wishing and wishing they wishing on me. Little fragment of the chorus at the very beginning. I have one more clip that I want to play you all, which is Ariana Grande. And she takes this to the extreme. She's going to take the pop overture, take that little chorus bit in the intro and obfuscate it so that you don't even know what you're hearing until you hear it later. This is her song, NASA. So we just get a four count of this kind of like strange synthesizer in the background, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But check out what happens in the chorus. Hey, what do you think we're hearing? Oh, okay, so you're, I think you're saying that the pop, that synthesized line we hear at the what we're calling the pop overture at the beginning <laughs> of the song, is uh, the same melody that she's singing later when the chorus comes in. I think it is. That sounds like it to me. I agree. It's the melody. Yeah. I'm not sure if it's not actually a sample of her voice mm. that That's is then been, yeah. distorted and filtered. Check it out one more time. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's a good hypothesis, Chuck. It's introductory material that you have no idea is particularly important. Like, even her song Break Free with Zed begins with some really wild and interesting synthesizers that don't come back again until much later into the outro. They, they don't really have a relationship to the rest of the song. And that's, that's not uncommon. Sometimes introductory and outro material is uh, something unique to bring you in and take you out of the song. And here, this is like, I'm going to give you the the prize at the end, but it's just a hint of it. 
Like, maybe you're seeing it from afar. So is the idea kind of like if you're listening to a playlist that you get the song, like a taste of the song in the very beginning, and then you can just immediately decide, oh, I'm going to stick with this long enough to, you know, get that 30 seconds payout. <laughs> yeah. Um, or if it's not, or you're like, oh, no, I didn't like that little, that, that three seconds intro, so I'm going to skip to the next one. That's what I'm thinking. I find it persuasive. What do you all think? Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting reminder of what you're going to get. So you might stick with the song a bit longer. You get the juices flowing right away in a way that you're sort of not suspecting, and then the full thing comes on later. Yeah, I like this idea of foreshadowing almost is what it seems like to me. Yeah, that's good. Mm-hmm. And you're just sort of getting a little taste, and it's the way it is in books, right? You see something, you're like, ooh, I like that, and le- then later you're like, oh my god, that's what it was. I like it even more. <laughs> you know, to your point, I'm actually starting to listen differently now, because, like, I don't know, I feel like so often introductory material, it feels more throwaway in a lot of popular music, or, like, it has at least, my relationship to it has, has been as such, and now I'm like, ooh, what is that thing you just did? Is that going to come back later? The recycling approach. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So one of the concerns that Mark Ronson brings up is this question of, like, is the streaming economy incentives fundamentally changing how music is written? And I think there's an important inverse of that question is, is the way that music is written actually just making shorter songs? It's hard to know which variable is accounting for this effect. And in your article, you talked about the rise of beat-making culture as a way of producing music that may also be contributing to this. What, what is beat-making culture? So beat making culture is basically when you, you know, you make a funky beat and then mm-hmm. you license that out to other artists or producers and they can sample it. And this is from Jeff Ponchik from Repost. Uh-huh. Uh, when I spoke to him, and that's a platform that sort of connects artists to streaming platforms. Mm. Oh. And the idea is once you get a really good beat and you find that it's lucrative and it's successful, that the greatest incentive is just to license it out and then create another one. So it's kind of like you're producing as quick as possible because you know that this beat is good, so you want to make the next one as quickly as possible. Ah, so it's kind of like an uh, like an assembly line <laughs> approach to pop production or something. In a way, and obviously st- streaming incentives have sort of heightened the tension between, you know, artistic integrity and creating beats that are optimal for streaming. But I do think there is more incentive to create things quicker. And I think Mark Ronson touched on that too. He talked about how people just write songs in 30 minutes. And in that Guardian interview, he said, well, it sounds like you wrote it in 30 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and, but often with beats, I don't think that's necessarily as obvious hmm. in comparison to lyrics. I, I think this gets to the important idea that it's beats mostly that they're making uh, rather than writing more you know, songs that include bridges and multiple melodies and things like that. And so I think when you have songs that are based on just this one particular beat, uh, it doesn't make sense for those songs to be quite as long uh, if there's not as much variation. Mm. Especially if people are having fun listening to them. Why totally. Why extend them if it's, if it's working? I think this raises a really important question and sort of to get to the underlying anxiety is, I, th- I think, Aisha, you, you mentioned artistic integrity. And, and this mm-hmm. is very real. I think people are concerned. Are there bad players out there? Is there fraud? Are people cheating this new system? There are people who have been trying to cheat the streaming system, as you say. So one sort of 
high-profile case was this band called Volpec. Yeah. And what they did was that they created this silent album. Mm -hmm. And they encouraged their fans to sort of play this album on repeat as they slept (laughs) over and over again. I believe it was called Sleepify. Exactly, (laughs) Sleepify. And then they said to their fans that the money generated from those streams would be used to fund their next tour. So in a way, you know, I don't know if the impetus behind that was was sinister or not, but either way, they were totally cheating the system. <laughs> yeah, there was another scam in Bulgaria that was uh, not, you know, I don't think there were any good reasons for it, like uh, the Wolfbeck one. Uh, they made about $1 million, uh, this uh, group of people in Bulgaria who just created fake Spotify accounts and played a third-party playlist over and over and over, and uh, yeah, a $1 million out of it. Pretty wow. good. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Just to jump in on that, that's sort of on the production side or the artist side. There have also been cases where fans have been cheating the system, right? And I think the most high profile of these cases is Harry Styles and then BTS fans. And for those who Mm. don't know, BTS, which is short for the Bangtan Boys, is this really popular K-pop group. And their fans sort of systematically bought U.S. premium accounts and distributed those login details all across the world and convinced other fans to sort of stream over and over and over again. They even use VPNs to like sort of trick the servers. And that made it seem like, you know, the songs were skyrocketing to the top of the charts. Right. And now it's really hard to know what was fraud and what was real. Yeah, you don't want to mess with the army. That's the name of the BTS fans. Yes, the BTS <laughs> army. <laughs> That's wild. I unlike Mark Ronson, though I definitely empathize as a fellow neurotic Jew uh, in general about his his you know anxieties about the state of the world um, I this this particular thing the the how streaming is changing the sound of music doesn't keep me up at night because I think as we've talked about it's this is maybe part of a cycl- a cyclical aspect of the music industry right you know it, albums have not been around that long they're a relatively new phenomenon they've only been around since the 60s. 1948 was the LP. Oh no, 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 Charlie! But that that oh. wasn't an album. <laughs> the LP. Okay, no, this is actually, this, this is really interesting. So, the LP was invented in 1948, but album-oriented music only took off in the late 60s when right. people sort of finally took advantage of that extra length. Similarly, Spotify came out in 2006, the f- sort of the you know the most dominant mm-hmm. streaming platform. And now we're talking, mm-hmm. you know, 14 years later, 13 years later, people are now responding to this new medium and there's sort of this lag time between these new technologies gaining dominance within the industry. Mm, yeah, I see what you but mean. But to your point, yeah, things are have always fluctuated. I mean, I, for, for example, uh, Dan, you were mentioning earlier that, that songs used to be a lot shorter. When, when I saw all of these concerns about song lengths, I, I went to absurd lengths to build a database of all the number one songs since they've been documented, I think since 1937 was the earliest I could go back. And... Songs used to be about three minutes long uh, back in the 30s and 40s, but half of that song was often an instrumental. So if you took a song like All the Things You Are by Tommy Dorsey, the 1940 recording. You are the promised kiss of springtime that makes the lonely winter seem long. There is just one minute and six seconds of lyrics in a three-minute and 19-second song. The rest is in- instrumental that basically does the same melody as the lyric with maybe a little intro and outro. And so I don't think anyone's questioning, is all the things you are, is it 
a good song, bad song because of its length. It's almost a, it's a kind of, I think a, a ridiculous question. If you walked into I don't know, a gallery and you're like, man, canvas sizes are getting really small or they're getting really big. <laughs> it's like, is that really that indicative of what's happening within the frame? Yeah. In my opinion, the best album of 2018 was uh, Tierra Wax Whack World, which Whack is World. oh yeah. <laughs> For those who don't know, Tara Wack's debut album, Wack World, was made up of 15 songs that were one minute or less. And one minute is also the maximum length of an Instagram video. And uh, each song had an accompanying video. So I see that album as sort of this example of playing around and manipulating with these confines of like the shorter song yeah. and creating, you know, in your words, like a smaller canvas and maybe just putting more in it which I think is interesting. It felt almost like a, a, a commentary on the song. This is the commentary on the song form because when I listened to it, every single time it got to the minute mark, I was like, oh, I want more of it, which is exactly. actually really effective because you're like, I could go back and listen again. Exactly. It's a really good tactic. Um, but just to your previous point about how, you know, songs have always been shorter, but now there is this sort of anxiety. I think that anxiety is tied to like brevity in popular culture or digital mm. platforms as a whole, mm. people are concerned about, you know, light culture where we just respond to everything with a thumbs up yeah. or just mm-hmm. an emoji um, and we're just like scrolling through Instagram videos or Snapchat videos kind of numbly. And mm. I think this anxiety over short, shorter songs or maybe the diminishing quality of music because of shorter songs is actually tied to maybe the diminishing mm. quality of our communication or interaction with each other because of the way that social media has pervaded like society. Hmm. Yeah. Well, it, is, it is the deep existential angst working its way in. <laughs> I think that's, I, Aisha, I think that's, if I can be so bold, I think that's a great place to end this conversation because <laughs> to me, like what this, what this, you know, your expertise and, and, and like bringing in both some audio examples and some, some facts about this have made me realize like, oh, you can't, like you ultimately you can't cheat the system like you can't <laughs> trick someone into listening to a song like people are only going to listen to music if they like it and they're not if they don't so it's not like music isn't getting any better or worse as a result of this but the way we feel about it says a lot about what we're mm. scared of in yeah. general right mm. i think so totally wow you all brought so much thought into this conversation Thank you so much for joining us. It's been so much fun. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. You can go check out Aisha and Dan's piece, The Reason Why Your Favorite Pop Songs Are Getting Shorter, uh, on Quartz, and we'll put it in our show notes. I want to say thanks to Jeremy Lloyd from Marion Hill, mm-hmm. Chris Melanfi from Slate. Go check out his show, Hit Parade. It's great. And I want to say a special thanks to Courtney Leonard, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley for making Switched On Pop look great. You might not have noticed, but we got a little bit of a makeover. And the design team from Vox, I think, has just done a stunning job. So thank you so much. Switched On Pop is a production of Vox Media, executive production by Nishat Kurwa and Allison Rocky, production by Jillian Weinberger, engineering by Brandon McFarland, community manager Sarah Terry. You can find more shows on any podcast you player you use, Apple Podcast app, Spotify, so on, so forth. Uh, I'm thinking now, though, Charlie, all our shows should be kept to about three. 30. Yeah, maybe just like two, two minutes and 50 seconds. Yeah, so. definitely. Yeah. Let's try that. That'd be okay, fun. Okay, great. <laughs> 
Uh, you can find more episodes as well on switchedonpop.com, and we love getting your suggestions on Twitter and Instagram. We are at switchedonpop. We are going to be back again in another week, so we will see you next Tuesday. And until then, thanks, thanks for, for listening. listening. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing! I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.